Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Listen to the science. That's been the directive since the beginning of this pandemic. Fuck your feelings. Fuck your hot takes. Fuck what you read in that Facebook group. You're not going to crack this in your spare time. There are good minds working around the clock on this. So listen to the science. And that's gone for everybody, but for reporters specifically. Now, typically, we're not supposed to just regurgitate the information that is handed to us by authorities or experts. We're supposed to question. We're supposed to scrutinize. Uh, we're supposed to poke. We're supposed to challenge not this time. I mean, who am I to challenge the science? I mean, the stakes are just too high. If we challenge the science and, and get it wrong, I don't want to spread misinformation about the coronavirus. I do not want to spread misinformation about vaccines. So whatever doubts or hesitations or hunches that we may have, I mean, like you're, you're telling me that it's really just a big coincidence that there happens to be a level four virus lab in Wuhan. Okay, whatever questions I might have. Well, I'm not a scientist. I'm not even a science journalist. But a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a science journalist. Elaine Dewar is a journalist and author who wrote a book called On the Origin of the Deadliest Pandemic in 100 Years. And as you heard on that episode, she rejects the idea that there is one big empirical, the science, to listen to. Science, she says, is an argument, a, a debate, a competition of theories. It evolves, it includes opinions, and it is susceptible to human error, to ego, and to political interference, just like anything else. And she did this big deep dive into the competing theories, into the research, into the science, and though she is not herself a scientist, she is scientifically literate, and she claimed to emerge from that process with strong evidence that the lab leak theory, the theory that COVID-19 did emerge from that level four virus lab in Wuhan and not from the Wuhan wet market, she put forth that that theory should not be dismissed, that in fact, the lab leak theory 
is probably what happened. She also reported on the efforts of various authorities, the Chinese government, the U.S. government, and even the Canadian government, to cover up and even to mislead the public about viruses and virus research. And she pulled an impressive scoop. Turns out a high-ranking Chinese military general secretly had access to our Level 4 virus lab in Winnipeg. Now, the implications of that remain unclear. But the fact that it happened and that it was kept from us was verified by other journalists. And I decided, okay, let's dare to stray from the directive and let's hear what Elaine Dewar has to say. And then I got the message that I most feared. It was from the science. Specifically, it was from a scientist, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who is an American virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. And Dr. Rasmussen said is that Elaine Dewar has it all wrong. And Dr. Angela Rasmussen joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Sarah Montgomery, Ryan Dean, Ariel Freeman Fawcett, Trilby Buck, Madison and Miles, Angus Smith, Dananjai Kohli, and Andrew Wilson. My name is Andrew, and I'm a chiropractor from Port Elgin, Ontario. I listen to Canada Land because they continue to cover important stories thoroughly, and I like their commitment to practicing responsible journalism. Canada Land, I hope you continue to grow and break new stories like Thunder Bay and White Saviors. Keep up the great work, everyone. We recently published an episode where a science journalist and author, Elaine Dewar, presented her research and her ideas about the origins of the coronavirus, of COVID-19. What was the experience of listening to that podcast like for you, a virologist? Listening to that podcast, and I was already familiar with the the topic of her book, was somewhat jarring um, just because it was riddled with so many factual errors right down to to Ms. Dewar's hypothesis about how SARS coronavirus 2 uh, emerged in people. And actually right down to the title of her book is factually incorrect. While SARS coronavirus 2 has been absolutely terrible and has upended all of our lives, it actually isn't the most deadly pandemic in the last 100 years. That would uh, be HIV, at least for now. Hopefully, SARS coronavirus 2 won't actually overtake HIV in terms of its death toll. But I was really struck by how little fact checking I think that she did. It didn't seem to me as though she had actually consulted anybody with any kind of subject matter expertise on her research. And to me, that, that is quite egregious for somebody who's writing a book on a very technical scientific topic. Well, listen. What you just said makes me clench up, you know, uncomfortably. I, of course, don't want to publish any kind of error or misinformation, and I especially don't want to publish any kind of misinformation about this pandemic and about the science. And I want to kind of avoid getting into a defensive posture. I also don't want to bash somebody who I hosted as a guest on the show any more than I would want to have somebody come on next week and tear you apart. But all of those considerations are, of course, to, you know, take a backseat to the truth and the factual record. You tweeted that Ms. Dewar's speculative claims are unsupported. That's different than factual error. And your own research, your own published work that you pointed me towards says in its conclusion that the possibility of a lab accident cannot be entirely dismissed. So the exercise of having Elaine Dewar on was not, here's a journalist who knows better than all the scientists. My understanding was, here's a science journalist who is going to act as an interpreter from the world of research and science, and she has a book that she says is basically a compilation of information she's got from the scientific record, and she's going to act as an interpreter for a general audience, because I just don't have the scientific literacy to divine one theory from the next or fact from inaccuracy. So I rely on scientists like you, and I understood that science is not always conclusive or uh, a monolith. And here was a journalist who was interpreting a viable theory. All of that being said, 
if we got something wrong, I want to account for that. So let's go through it if we can. So what I heard from Elaine Dewar was that uh, there were these three miners in 2012 in Yunnan province who went into a bat cave and got really sick. And samples from the virus they contracted, uh, some of them died from it, were sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And she posited the the question, was their virus, I think it was rat G13, an ancestor of SARS-CoV-2? That was a question that she posed, and I guess the hypothesis for her book. Is that a viable hypothesis or is that incorrect? So that is incorrect um, because, in fact, actually the, the way that she stated the name of that virus is actually incorrect. It's RATG13. That actually means something too. It means Rhinolophus affinis, which is the species of bat that that virus was collected from. Uh, TG is the uh, name of that mine, um, Tongguan, and 13 means that that sample was collected in 2013. Um, so she is incorrect uh, on a couple things besides that with that hypothesis. First of all, she is actually correct that other viruses were identified in that mine, but not apparently in the miners' lungs. Um, they were identified from samples that were then collected after these three miners died of viral pneumonia um, of unknown etiology. And we still don't know what they actually died from. Um, that hasn't been published. But what has been published are the sequence of eight different viruses that they collected uh, in that mine one of which is RATG13. And it is correct that RATG13 is 96% similar to the genome of SARS coronavirus 2. However, when we're talking about viral genomes, 4% difference is actually huge. So RATG13 is a very closely related SARS-related coronavirus to SARS coronavirus 2, but it's more like a distant cousin. There is no way that RATG13 could have become SARS coronavirus 2 because that 4% difference is actually scattered throughout the entire genome of the virus. So in effect, what this would mean is that this virus in a very short period of time, according to Ms. Dewar's hypothesis, would have had to acquire over a thousand different mutations scattered throughout the genome randomly, um, which is just not something that SARS coronavirus 2 is capable of Coronaviruses do have a high mutation rate, as do all RNA viruses, um, but it's not that fast. But her hypothesis, as I understand it, is that perhaps gain-of-function experimentation in the Wuhan virus lab with an express purpose, human manipulation, to make that virus more virulent would supercharge that rate of mutation and could account for that 4% difference between RATG13 and SARS-CoV-2. Is that impossible? That is pretty much impossible. I mean, it's not impossible that somebody could insert over a thousand point mutations into the genome of a progenitor virus. But first of all, there's no reason why anybody would, because that would be incredibly tedious and difficult to do. Also, as a virologist, as somebody who myself has cloned viruses, it, it's challenging. It's not like you can just type in a sequence and print out a virus. Um, it, it actually is technically very difficult. So there's no reason why anybody would think to insert all of those different mutations. And that, that also is not really the point of so-called gain-of-function research. So when people are doing this type of research, when they're inserting different elements into a virus to see if that increases infectivity in humans, um, in human cells usually, or to see if it increases pathogenicity or transmissibility, usually what people are doing is inserting one element. So in this case, that would be something like the receptor binding domain of the spike protein or uh, the furin cleavage site, which has also gotten a lot of attention. So furin is a protease. It's an enzyme that clips proteins, basically. And uh, the purpose of a furin cleavage site for SARS coronavirus 2 is that the, the spike protein needs to be cleaved or chopped up in order to facilitate cell entry. And that really is um, sort of the secret as to how this virus has been so transmissible in the human population is the presence of that furin cleavage site. 
Now, other coronaviruses have these fear and cleavage sites, including MERS coronavirus, which is another beta coronavirus, but none of them have a fear and cleavage site that's really like the fear and cleavage site in SARS coronavirus 2, and that's because the fear and cleavage site in SARS coronavirus 2 is extremely suboptimal. So we've seen variants emerge in the human population, most recently the Delta variant, that have additional mutations in the furin cleavage site that makes them more effective. The fact that those mutations are occurring in the furin cleavage site means that this furin cleavage site in SARS coronavirus 2 was not optimized for humans. Um, and that, that really argues against the fact that it was deliberately inserted. I guess these things can degrade to a kind of chicken and egg thing where you're doing detective work on a level that's far beyond my understanding, where the evidence of random chaotic mutation versus human manipulation, I guess you could posit if you were trying to manipulate this thing, not just to be highly virulent and contagious, but also to evade detection of human manipulation, you might throw some red herrings in there to throw off detectives like yourself at a certain point. It's not important that I follow everything that you're saying or, the, or that you just said. It's that I have to defer to your wildly advanced knowledge of this and say, if you're telling me that that's impossible, then it doesn't matter if I can follow you each step of the way. I'm not a scientist. I just have to say I accept that it must be impossible. The problem we get into is when other people who seem to have scientific credentials and, and I also don't have the expertise to weigh one person's credentials against the other and say, who's the superior scientist? When I'm told, not by Elaine Dewar, but by other scientists, that there is weight to these other theories. That's where this gets very confusing. Yeah, and I completely understand that. And you are absolutely correct in saying that none of the origins hypotheses are off the table. Certainly, this could have come from a laboratory accident. But right now, in my view, the evidence that supports a laboratory origin, and that, that can mean anything, it's, it's very difficult to discuss this because there's a lot of different potential laboratory origin hypotheses. The only thing that is actual, confirmed, indisputable evidence is the fact that the pandemic started in Wuhan, and they happen to have a lab there that, that does a lot of coronavirus work. And it's really one of the best labs in the world. The irony of this situation for me is that we would not know half of what we did know about SARS coronavirus 2 when it first emerged as a novel virus if it weren't for the work that was being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Dr. Shi Li in particular, her work has really been, I think, transformative for the field and incredibly informative to everybody. It's given us more insight than we would have had. And with the novel virus, you know, you don't know anything about it to begin with. So any little bit of information is helpful. But that said, you are correct. There are different evidence bases, but certainly um, I'm not disputing the fact at all that we can't rule out a laboratory origin. I think that just the, the quality of the evidence bases make the laboratory origin much less likely than a natural zoonotic spillover. And other scientists I've read, like, you know, I, I read in the Wall Street Journal, Dr. Stephen Kwai and, and Dr. Richard Mueller, the science suggests a Wuhan lab leak. So one thing to point out here, and I agree with you, I don't want to, to get into like a name calling contest or, or put you on the defensive or trash um, Ms. Dewar or anybody. But one thing I would point out is that that editorial, Stephen Quay is a breast cancer specialist um, who has never worked on virology. Dr. Mueller is a physicist. There really aren't very many actual virologists, epidemiologists or ecologists who finds the lab origin theory to be more credible or more plausible. So returning to like the stuff that I feel a certain responsibility for because we published it and things that listeners of the show heard, listeners of the show heard Elaine Dewar talk about how typically a virus has to mutate once it's out in the public to figure out how to best infect humans. But this one, when it popped up in Wuhan, it was born ready to spread. And the question she asks is, well, how did it get so well adapted? You know, why was it born so perfect for spreading like wildfire through humans? 
And then, you know, and we should make a distinction between the facts that she presents as facts and then the hypothesis that she presents as a hypothesis. But is there anything factually wrong with that, that this thing kind of kind of burst out and was kind of uniquely suited to spreading amongst humans and didn't have that kind of, we, we didn't see that period of gestation where it figured out, out in the wild, how to infect humans. It already knew how to do that. Yeah, so, so that is correct. But what's incorrect about this is, is how this is being interpreted. So for that, um, she referred to a preprint uh, by a postdoctoral fellow at the Broad Institute um, of Harvard and MIT named Alina Chan, who has made this argument that the virus was, quote unquote, pre-adapted for um, spread and infection in the human population. And that, that paper remains a preprint over a year later not because it's not a hypothesis that shouldn't be raised, but because it hasn't passed peer review. And that's because this virus is not uniquely born ready to infect humans. A lot of viruses can infect humans and many other species. And in fact, we do know that SARS coronavirus 2 is a very generalist virus. So it can infect humans, it can infect uh, raccoon dogs, it can infect cats, it can infect dogs, it can infect palm civets. It can infect badgers and hedgehogs. It can infect a lot of different species uh, besides just bats. So that is not unusual um, in, in the virus world. SARS coronavirus 2 has all the hallmarks of a recently emergent virus in the human population that, that can infect a number of different species. And that's really determined by chance encounters, which is really the basis for zoonotic spillover or spillover from animals into humans. The fact that SARS coronavirus 2 can infect all these other species provides a number of different possible routes for how it could have gotten into the human population naturally. We just need to look at the evidence that has unfolded right before our eyes during the course of the pandemic. We've seen variants emerge um, that are either more transmissible or more capable of binding the ACE2 receptor in people. Um, that would be the so-called immune evasive variants, beta and gamma. And then there are the more transmissible variants, Alpha and Delta. Those mutations uh, suggest that this virus was in fact not well adapted to the human host. And these adaptations have only been acquired after the virus has spread um, to a great extent throughout the human population. Well, we also don't have the animal. If this was a spillover from animals to humans, then like the hunt is on for the animal that gave it to humans. And one thing that our listeners heard from Elaine Dewar is that that animal hasn't been identified. And I have to imagine that there's been a pretty big effort to find that animal because if it did come from zoological spillover, then there's likely still animals out there with this thing mutating a whole other source of possible reinfection. So is that true what we heard, that we haven't actually located the source if it was zoonotic spillover? Yeah, so we, we haven't found the, the smoking raccoon dog um, or palm civet or whatever species it was that may have... Um, been responsible for a spillover. Um, but also, I would just point out... That <laughs> I just can't... I'm just dumb and can't help picturing a smoking raccoon dog right now, but I'm sorry. <laughs> please continue. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's been so much smoking gun discussions, and there hasn't really been a smoking gun of any kind for any origin hypothesis. So um, I, I sometimes like to try to mock that a little bit. Not Ms. Dewar. I just... Uh, this conversation has been going on for a very long time. And in many ways, I'm so tired of the idea that that we have to find this smoking gun, uh, whatever it is, whether it's evidence of a lab leak or a zoonotic spillover, because the reality is for a lot of viruses, we're never going to find that. And while Ms. Dewar is correct that during the most recent WHO mission to China, they did test tens of thousands of animals but that's really a drop in the bucket when you look at the overall wildlife trade in China. And I would, this is where this gets kind of speculative for me, but we do have some evidence that the wildlife trade is possibly implicated in this. Um, in June, a paper came out that was done by people who are not virologists. They were actually tracking the wildlife trade in China, and they did very comprehensive surveys of the live animals that were available for sale in the, the markets in Wuhan all the way until November of 2019. And based on that paper, we know that there are species that are susceptible to SARS coronavirus 2 and were being sold live in the markets in Wuhan. We also know 
that these animals actually come from a common supply chain. So they're farmed in many cases and transported to Wuhan together, usually in pretty crowded, pretty inhumane conditions. And then they're sold at, at the various markets. So we know that these viruses are there. We know that they're circulating in these wildlife farms and in these animals that are being sold in the markets. And finally, again, it's circumstantial, but that's exactly the circumstances under which SARS coronavirus emerged. Now, a lot of people will say to this, well, they found the link to the markets for SARS classic really quickly. Mm -hmm. That's because in this case, the Chinese government did something very different than what they did during the SARS classic uh, outbreaks. They shut down the markets entirely. They removed all the animals and uh, they really didn't talk to that many people when the WHO mission was, was occurring uh, who would say that there were live animals being sold. But we know conclusively that there were. And um, we also don't have any access to the, the early contact tracing data that might shed some more light on this and, and might further show a potential link to those markets. But what we do have is excess death and early case data that suggests that those early cases and subsequently the excess deaths that occurred from unexplained pneumonia all occurred in the area that the markets were in and not where the Wuhan Institute of Virology campus where Xi Li has her lab was in. So um, all of that together, to me anyways, is suggestive of a link to the wildlife trade. And the reason why that link hasn't been more conclusively identified is because the Chinese government hasn't allowed access to the data that would allow us to do that. This is so frustrating for a regular person because, you know, it mirrors so closely the exact same argument that just went towards a different um, hypothesis or, or, or a different conclusion that listeners heard earlier. You know, we heard earlier 44% of the first COVID victims had no connection. It's circumstantial, I suppose, that there's a level four virus lab in Wuhan, and, but it's beyond just the coincidence, as you put it, okay, yes, there's this, this vir virus lab, but don't let that take you to the wrong conclusion. That's also where they were doing gain of, they were doing gain of function work and there were safety concerns in that virus lab. So it's like there's circumstantial stuff on both sides then you're both pointing to political interference to support rival hypotheses. And I have no trouble believing for a fact, uh, and, and this is something we can document, that there was a clampdown on information. It's just we don't know to what end, to, to hide what exactly. Yeah, and I mean, this is, this is a great point. But I would point out, too, that the hypothesis that Ms. Dewar has raised that this had its origins in RATG-13 and the Mojiang mine is absolutely demonstrably untrue. That that uh -huh. simply wouldn't happen, even though they were engaged in some gain-of-function research. Now, I've read the papers on coronaviruses that have come out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology very carefully, and they actually were not making chimeric viruses from scratch, effectively. They were using known backbones. So, um, in this case, they were taking viruses that they already had discovered and already had cloned, and they were putting some little pieces into them. Those viruses were isolated by traditional virology means. They were not sequences that they obtained and then cloned and then started screwing around with. And none of those viruses, importantly, none of the backbones they use, none of the modifications they've made that they've published are anything like SARS coronavirus 2. They're related viruses, but they are not SARS coronavirus 2, and they could not have become SARS coronavirus 2 with evolution uh, in the human population or in transgenic mice or in anything else, certainly not in cell culture. So I think that there's uh, an inappropriate conflation being made with this type of virology research and SARS coronavirus 2. Could SARS coronavirus 2 have resulted from research like that? Yes, but not if they didn't have a backbone that is consistent with the SARS coronavirus 2 genome. And Everything that, that Xi Zhengli has said over and over again is that they did not have that virus. No SARS coronavirus 2 progenitor at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. No SARS coronavirus 2 from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You're basing that on what they've published and said, and then I'm sure somebody would say, well, what about what they're covering up and haven't shared with you? Yeah, of course. And that's, that is the argument that is used to refute that. But I would just say that if they are covering it up, 
that's actually a conspiracy. It's an unproven theory. So in fact, it is a conspiracy theory that we have no basis and evidence for. And I have to say, I don't personally know Dr. Xi, but I certainly work with people who have worked with her and know her very well. They say that she's fundamentally an honest person and a good collaborator. And I think without evidence that suggests that she's in fact lying, I don't think that we should make the assumption that she is just because the Chinese government is not transparent. And the stuff about these two scientists in Winnipeg at a level four virus lab and there being a member of the Chinese military, and this is a legitimate verified scoop that Elaine Dewar produced, that there was a scientist who is a high-ranking member of the Chinese military who had high-level security access to this Winnipeg lab. Elaine Dewar was forthright that there's no direct link taking that back to Wuhan, but it's like one of these, like, what the hell is going on there? That's sort of like one of those bits of information where you start to think like, well, should I be casting aside all all of this stuff as as conspiracy theory when you've got like a bioweapons Chinese military person with access to a, a Canadian lab and people are getting fired and the government is refusing to hand over information? You know, it's one of those things where there's all this smoke. I don't know what the truth is, but enough of this has been verified that like, somebody's trying to stop me from knowing the full picture. So then you kind of become susceptible to a lot of different ideas. Right. I I totally agree with that. And I think it it shows a couple things. First of all, that, you know, the Chinese government certainly doesn't have the market cornered on secrecy or a lack of transparency. And um, I'm a recent arrival in Canada. I'm from originally the U.S. Certainly the U.S. government um, is equally not forthcoming about many things. uh, And that has certainly come up in the course of the origins investigation and discussion. I think that what we really know about the the entire situation at the NML in Winnipeg is just that Dr. Chu and her husband were let go, were escorted out of the lab, and uh, are no longer doing research there. There was some issues with the paperwork in shipping viruses, and this was actually another factual error here. Ms. Dewar referred to this as Hennepa virus, but importantly, We can talk about biosafety, we can talk about biosecurity, we can talk about whether we're doing that right, whether there's proper oversight or proper regulation or enough transparency, but that doesn't necessarily have anything whatsoever to do with the origins of this pandemic. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. 
I feel like I'm pitting this too much as like uh, what she has to say versus what you have to say because she attributed this theory that the virus mutated in the lungs of those miners to another scientist. This isn't my theory. I'm just aggregating this information and presenting it to you. I will defer to your uh, description. You will know better than I what the debate is, if any, in the community of virologists. Is there a debate? Are there two valid hypotheses? You know, forget about me. Forget about Elaine Dewar. I have in recent months been kind of brought to understand that the lab leak theory is, is back on the table. A lot of scientists think that there's something worth exploring there. I know that you've left open, you know, like, sure, I can't say with 100% certainty that that's false. So you've left a little space there. But is this like a, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to describe this. I guess there's some things that, that are closer to settled science than others. Where does this stand in, in your scientific community? Yeah, so I think in the virology community, it's really a false equivalence to say that, that these two competing hypotheses are equally likely. You know, certainly, I don't think the lab hypothesis has ever been off the table. I think that everybody has acknowledged that that can't be ruled out, or as we would say, that that's a hypothesis that can't be falsified. So we, we can't say for sure that it didn't come from a lab. We also have no affirmative evidence that it did. And as I pointed out, we have all this accumulating evidence that there may be this link to the wildlife trade that's worth exploring particularly considering there's also motives for the Chinese government to cover that origin up. Um, and I'd argue that doing nothing about a multi-billion dollar industry in China that was definitely the cause of the SARS coronavirus classic emergence and epidemic, essentially doing nothing about that and then having another virus emerge under the exact same circumstances and turn into a pandemic that has now claimed millions of lives, I think is something that they probably wouldn't want to get out either, besides yeah. just simply a lab accident. Now, with regard to the hypothesis specifically that this was the Mojang miners' uh, lung samples that resulted in SARS coronavirus 2, so that hypothesis, as, as you said correctly, was advanced initially by a couple different scientists. They are plant virologists, and the, I mean no disrespect whatsoever to the plant virology community. They're certainly virologists, but plant viruses are very different from animal viruses. So those people who, who advanced that hypothesis really don't know much about what happens to an animal virus in the lungs. And that really is the, the central part of that hypothesis is that in these miners who were infected, that this virus adapted to people, um, at least initially, in their lungs. And that's quite simply not possible uh, if that virus was RATG13, which is what they suggest. So I think that what's challenging about this is it's hard to parse who's an expert in what, right? Yeah. It's so messy in that there is this battling credential thing like, okay, somebody whose expertise is breast cancer, that's pretty far from vi virology. But then we're kind of like going up the chain and it's like virologist versus virologist. Like, yeah, I guess an animal virologist sounds like a better expert on this than a plant virologist. And then you get into the like kind of casting, like maybe they've got certain political affiliations or beliefs that sort of taint their point of view. And that cuts both ways as well. You know, and then you're sort of saying, well, the lab leak theory can't be falsified, but you're also saying that the wet market theory can't be verified, but you're getting pretty close. Can we talk a little bit about scientific literacy amongst the public and the relationship between science and journalism? The way in which we establish credibility for an expert in non-scientific areas, our rubric is probably very different than yours. How does a journalist reporting to a general audience I don't think the answer – it's always a good option just to shut the hell up, and maybe it's one that I should have taken. Like, like you know, Canada Land maybe doesn't need to weigh in on this, right? That's always a good option. But I'm not sure that just not covering science is a great way forward. So we, we defer to science reporters. They're not necessarily scientists, but there are science reporters who gain their reputations in being great interlocutors between the worlds of science and general audiences. Elaine Dewar is uh, an accomplished science journalist uh, who's written a number of books. It seems like her ability to understand science and, and speak to a general audience is well-established and, you know, 
book publisher's publisher and Globe and Mail interviews her. Nicholas Wade, who she cited as a serious and well-regarded science reporter who uh, she feels has lent credibility to her hypothesis in his work. So we kind of like have these intermediaries who are supposed to have uh, expertise and they're the ones who actually know which scientists to listen to over the other. Is that a broken process? Like, What is the proper way to try to bring people good information, especially when science is impacting people's lives in the way that it is now? Well, I think there's there's a couple things here. And I think that really, ultimately, it's the responsibility of both scientists and journalists to make sure that the public is getting the best possible information. So she cited Nicholas Wade as an authority because he wrote this very popular piece on Medium that then made it into the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. But she neglected to mention that Nicholas Wade also wrote a book on human genetics uh, several years ago that basically was a, a soft argument for eugenics that claimed that Western civilization drove the evolution of effectively white people into being a superior, uh, more civilized population of people. Um, so, you know, I don't put a lot of credibility into what Nicholas Wade says. At one point, he was a very respected science journalist, but now largely within the scientific community, he's really reviled uh, by a lot of people for, again, his views, which um, are, in my opinion, racist. Mm -hmm. I think that both scientists and journalists need to be very careful about how journalists are sourcing their stories. And it's the responsibility of scientists to say, and I've done this many times, um, I get asked all the time about epidemiology. I'm not an epidemiologist. When that happens, I refer a reporter to somebody who is. I think it's journalists' responsibilities, um, especially science journalists' responsibilities, to know who they should be talking to, to source uh, the scientists that they're speaking with correctly, to be able to distinguish between somebody with a PhD who is an expert in a topic versus somebody who is not. One thing that was very striking to me in Ms. Dewar's interview with you is that she mentioned several times that she was not able to do the type of reporting that she normally would do. Um, presumably, that means talking to experts. And she cited at one point the fact that everybody was working from home and she couldn't get a hold of them in their offices. Uh, well, I mean, I've been working from home uh, for, for a lot of the, the last year. You know, you could always get a hold of me through email. People are not hard to find. Actual experts are not hard to find. And usually, if you're talking about a certain paper, for example, scientists love doing that. Like, if they are able to talk to a, an accomplished science reporter about their own work, it is not hard to actually talk to experts and get an expert perspective and it just seems to me that a lot of the hypotheses that Ms. Dewar is presenting um, was really just not checked by experts and, and she didn't really seek out that expert perspective. Now, I could be wrong about that um, and I'm happy to be corrected on that, but I was surprised actually by how many factual errors were in that interview, even small things, you know, that, that most people who are not virologists wouldn't recognize. For example, she said that Initially, when the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology sequenced RATG13, um, they sequenced the RDRP, um, which is, as Elaine Dewar put it, a part of the spike protein. The RDRP stands for RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. It's the enzyme that copies the viral genome, and it's nowhere near the spike protein. It's uh, expressed in a completely different way. Um, that That is a just plainly factual error that any competent virologist could have corrected her on. And that's where I think it becomes the responsibility of a journalist who's engaged as sort of that intermediary between scientists and the public to make sure that they are getting it right by talking to people who have actual expertise in what they're writing about. Well, I don't want to make assumptions. I know that Elaine Dewar talked about difficulties in her process because of the pandemic. I don't know that that means she didn't seek expert opinion and perhaps she did go to experts and perhaps the conversation needs to continue. But, you know, I guess what I take from this is just like, again, just how how damn difficult this is. It just goes back and forth. Like Nicholas Wade, editor and writer at the New York Times and also for Nature Magazine and Science. And you're like, but did you know about this other side of Nicholas Wade? Where this breaks down 
is when assumptions of good faith break down, which sometimes perhaps they should when you talk about political interference or people basically carrying in an agenda to prove that they're dug in on one side and therefore they're kind of tilting their point of view to support that agenda, then we kind of like lose the sense that, hey, we may disagree or we may actually, somebody might be wrong, but we're all trying to get to the truth. I have no reason to believe that Elaine Dewar isn't trying to bring her readers accurate information. And I don't know what to say. Like, I suspect very strongly that she's going to feel like I didn't do a good enough job in presenting her hypothesis and her research to you. And we'll probably want to have a go at it as well. Do we put this under the category of like, let the debate continue? Because that seems like both sidesism, which I get a sense you're saying, no, that's not the accurate takeaway here. There's one side that is clearly has a lot more evidence uh, and likelihood than the other. Well, yeah. And and that's really what I'm saying. And, and really, the, the larger issue here for me is that the evidence is really what should be driving this and not individual hypotheses that have been advanced by this person or that person. We should acknowledge that there are a couple hypotheses that everybody agrees on that are possibilities. And then we should look at the evidence base dispassionately. But unfortunately, this conversation has just become so messy. A lot of that, though, I think is being done in bad faith. And I'm not saying that that's Ms. Dewar's intent at all. But many of the the conversations about this have really been derailed. You know, there's this whole conversation about was it right to say that this was a conspiracy theory and, you know, quote unquote, shut down all of the discussion about a lab leak. And I'm sorry, but, you know, nobody has shut down Elaine Dewar's book. Nobody shut down Josh Rogan, who was one of the first journalists to advance this. He's a political journalist for The Washington Post and has no expertise in science. He has also written a book about this, started writing it last April, April of 2020. So I don't see that this conversation has actually been shut down by accusations of, you know, the lab leak being a conspiracy theory. I see this debate as being one that is increasingly not focused on what the actual evidence is and really is serving various political ends. Um, and that, that to me is incredibly disturbing. But is it not true what we heard that there was a letter in Nature where a bunch of scientists came out very early and and they all signed a letter saying lab leak is not what happened. That's not where this came from. And then the media took from that, okay, science has spoken. We defer to science and science says that it wasn't a lab leak. And then later Ian Lipton, one of the signatories of Columbia University, backtracked and said, yeah, we do need to explore the lab leak theory. Is that not true? So – It's sort of true. Um, What happened was there were two letters early on. There was one in The Lancet and there was one in Nature Medicine. The letter in The Lancet explicitly condemned conspiracy theories, and that's the one that, that people tend to have a big problem with. But it really was more of a perspective piece than anything else. It was an opinion piece. People could take it or leave it. Obviously, I think that it was premature to completely dismiss potential lab origin But it is worth pointing out that at the time that was written, the prevailing lab origin hypothesis was that this was an intentionally engineered biological weapon, which I think everybody who is serious in this conversation thinks is not the case. That letter, to a certain degree, was a product of its time. And I should add, I I was not an author on either of these. The other one, the letter in Nature, is actually in Nature Medicine, and it's called The Proximal Origin of SARS Coronavirus 2. That piece had five authors on it, four of which um, are also authors on the cell piece that I recommended to you that I am an author on that was a recent review of the entire evidence base. Now, the Proximal Mm -hmm. Origins paper in Nature Medicine stated that it was unlikely to be a laboratory origin or an engineered virus because of these different features one of which was the furin cleavage site. They pointed out then that the furin cleavage site was unusual. Um, it was suboptimal. And uh, it wasn't something that anybody would intuitively engineer. And one of the other things they cited in that paper was the lack of a known backbone that would be compatible with SARS coronavirus 2. At the time, you know, we Didn't yet know, I think, about RATG13. We didn't have the full sequence. But as it turns out, that virus and virtually every other SARS-related coronavirus sequence that's been released since then 
are all incompatible with being the basis for engineering SARS coronavirus 2, or, or they're incompatible with being a progenitor if it was a natural accident or a, a laboratory accident. Now, Ian Lipkin, full disclosure, used to be my boss, but uh-huh. he has changed his tune, and I'm not entirely sure why he has, but there's a pretty good reason why um, he is not an author on that cell review, um, because he is clearly reviewing this evidence differently than his co-authors from the original Proximal Origins manuscript. The rest of us who did author this review in Cell, um, we're looking at all of the, the evidence that has emerged since that time. So not just the viral genome, but also this new information about the wildlife trade in Wuhan, including the confirmation that these animals were present in those markets. All of that information that has emerged since then is really what compels us to continue to think that while we can't rule laboratory origin out, uh, the evidence is pointing towards a natural zoonotic origin. So Ian Lipton, who you worked for and and who you respected, has broken from the consensus and and you don't know why or or what's going on there? I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know why, because to me, and to all of his co-authors um, on that Proximal Origins paper and my co-authors on the Cell Review do believe that the evidence, um, again, points strongly towards uh, a natural zoonotic origin rather than a laboratory origin. Do you think we're ever going to have absolute clarity on where this virus came from? I think that remains to be seen. But if we ever hope to find the origin of this virus... We need to have an open dialogue about it. We need to be honest about what the evidence suggests. We are not going to be able to do an actual origins investigation by making a bunch of unsupported claims about what the Chinese government might be covering up or what Chinese scientists might be covering up. I think that 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 is actually really counterproductive in terms of us ever having a reasonable investigation into all of this. And I think also people need to manage their expectations. It does take a lot of work, a lot of sampling to find a virus in nature. Um, you know, there's millions, billions of animals, wild animals out there that potentially could host uh, the progenitor SARS coronavirus 2. And it's just going to be a matter of trying to find that needle in a haystack in a series of haystacks that are also all full of other needles. So this type of work is incredibly challenging and there's no guarantee that we're ever going to, to find, um, you know, the, the host species um, or the, the smoking bat or raccoon dog or whatever. Um, for SARS Classic, while the market connection was made very quickly, they actually spent 15 years uh, before they of sampling bats before they found the, the virus that probably gave rise to SARS Classic in a bat. And you know who did that work? Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you again so much. It's my pleasure, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me on and for encouraging this vigorous debate and discussion. That is your Canada Land show. If you like it, here's what you can do. You can spread the word about it. Tell somebody that we're doing this. They might like it. Very excited to announce that our series Commons is about to launch their new season. And the focus of this season, mining. We have shocking stories about Canadian mining. Not going to want to miss this. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. And I never say this, but my name is spelled J-E-S-S-E. How many emails have I lost over the years to people sending it to Jesse with an I? I'll never know. This episode was produced by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, we offer ad-free versions of this podcast and all of our other podcasts at canadaland.com slash join in exchange for your support each month. A few bucks. Go do it. canadaland.com slash join. 